This is Anthony Pascal. And this is Lori Elster, and this is the All Access Star Trek podcast. We will be reviewing the Discovery episode Choose to Live today, but we're going to cover there's not a lot of news this week. We've got a little bit of news. The first thing we have is from a really interesting interview that LeVar Burton did with Rolling Stone magazine. So I know you always love looking through these for little tidbits about what we can expect in shows. And he did talk about Picard season three only because he was asked about it, but he was vague. Well, and it wasn't even season three specifically as much as if you guys remember right after season one wrapped, LeVar basically said, announced to the world, he's talking to the producers and he expects to end up on the show at some time. Then as things kept on coming along on season two, eventually, you know, he kept on saying, you know, similar things, but then Whoopi Goldberg asked him, are you going to be in season two? And he said, no, this was a few months ago. Right. But he then kind of slyly indicated, you know, because he said specifically not on season two, um, which made us think, oh, season three. So right. the interview said, you're definitely not on season two, but will you ever show up? And he got a little squirrely. I mean, there's two ways to read it. So he says, I'm not right. psychic, which is like a weird thing to say, because it's like, they're shooting season three now. They're, they're going to be done by January or February. Um, so he knows he's in or not in season three. He's either being evasive or he's not in season three, right? Because there's no way he doesn't know, right? Right. But he does say, he says that, he says, I do believe that whatever else is going on in his life, it, in the storytelling that they're engaging in now, he knows these people. Speaking of John Luke Picard, so yes, he's, yes. he's saying, yeah, I, you know, whatever is he's going on in Picard's life, it makes sense for these people to be involved because they still would be. So, have we learned anything? I'm not sure we have because <laughs> I feel like he's saying, yeah, Jordy's going to show up, but he's being squirrely about it, and um, it's you know, in theory, Which he's already shot something, and there was some panel last week with the uh, production designer. He said LeVar was on the set. I mean, maybe he was just visiting, but... Which uh, he did do before. I mean, we know he's already visited the set. Yeah. So, yeah, no, and it could be... I think it could be a couple of things. Like, it could be that he hasn't gotten a call and wants one, so he doesn't want to sound bitter. It could be that he did get the call and he is doing it, but he's not allowed to tell anyone. Who knows? I mean, it makes sense. Yeah, there's a new ship. Um, we know that. So, you know, ships need engineers, right? Sure. Or, you know, <laughs> I doubt he's the engineer of the new ship. If it's a ship that's run through the whole season, that seems like a pretty significant role. Yes. I don't think he'd say I'm not psychic if he was in a billion episodes. <laughs> yeah. So I'm still thinking he's going to show up um, and he's being funny. He's, you know, he's trying to. You know, because, uh, you know, Whoopi Goldberg got squirrely, right, when she was clearly in season two. Right. So some people seem to be, you know, open to blabbing, like John Delancey. Others, um, not so much. You know, not so much. <laughs> yeah. Well, so the other part of the article that was very interesting um, was that he was asked about, you know, Jordy on TNG being very bad at romance and not really having any successful relationships and being awkward. And th they, the interviewer pointed out that it was weird that data got laid more than Jordy. Yeah. 
you know, it is it is a little surprising, I guess. It is. And and basically what he said was that it was in, that it was actually insulting. And he said that whether they were aware of it or not, he said, those white men who wrote the show had an unconscious bias that was on display to me and the other people of color. And their blind spot is revealed in the fact that a black man never was successful at one of the basic and mo- most. And then he talks about something else. But the point, he thinks it's ludicrous, basically, that Jordy never found somebody and was so awkward about it. And when he did, it was like weird. It was a hologram version of a real person. It was a subordinate. It was, you know, always kind of off. The interview brought up the extremely weird thing where Jordy created a hologram of a real person and then made out with her. And LeVar called that very uncomfortable. Although I'll Uh, tell you, if I was on the holodeck, that's what I'd be doing. (laughs) That's what what everyone would be doing. That's what everyone would be doing. Yeah. But still, I guess the, the the thing that's noteworthy here is that he's saying that there's an unconscious bias by the writer's room that, you know, he felt. And, you know, I guess as a black man growing up in that era, especially, he was on the lookout for what he sees as, you know, biases. And that's how he felt about it. Yeah, I don't um, even I don't even think he was on the lookout necessarily. I think you're just aware of those things. Cuz right. you see things you see things like this happen over and over and I I mean to me I look at it and I think, you know, he's a really good-looking guy and this was, you know, he's a lot younger back then and it does seem it was I it was supposed to be part of his character that he was kind of awkward, but like he was a good-looking, smart adult male with good friendships with people. So it kind of didn't really make sense that he was so awkward romantically. And especially they had seasons to give him an arc, you know, by season six or seven, maybe they could show some character growth and help then four movies, you know, throw him a bone and mention he's married and, you know, one of them. Yes. Just like, honestly, every other character on, I mean, the doctor on Voyager had sex. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like everybody got a little something. Whether it was one episode, it was part of an episode, whatever it was. And and Jordy really didn't. It obviously, because, you know, the interviewer didn't bring this up. The interviewer said, you know, would you change anything? And he immediately said, I would have gotten, you know, Jordy should have gotten laid. And I've seen him mention this in another thing. So it, it definitely bugs him. Of course, um, fact- yeah. It, it makes sense that it bugs him. And I think when he, you know, he talks about unconscious bias, which, so what he's not saying is these were a bunch of racist jerks. He's not saying that. He's saying, he's talking about unconscious bias, which is something that I think everybody's kind of now looking to see, oh, what are, may, I might have unconscious biases and I need to examine those and look inside myself. And I can see from the outpouring of defensiveness on the comments on our post about the article, people really, it struck a nerve and people are, you know, jumping over themselves to explain why it has nothing to do with an unconscious bias. And I think they're wrong. No one wants to believe that, you know, for a room that we, you know, writer's room that we have a lot of affection for and admiration for, but it's entirely possible. I think um, if you asked Iris Stephen Bear, who was in that room, you know, he talks about how in, in another context that he wishes that he did some things differently, um, specifically with, 
you know, in the DS9 documentary, he talks about right. with gay characters and stuff like that. So, you know, times change and, uh, you know, it was the 80s and the 90s and it's entirely plausible. But, you know, what matters is the actor came away with the, this giving him a bad taste. However, he's very clearly proud of his work on Star Trek, proud of Star Trek. He talked about how the role is iconic to this day. So he's not saying, you know, Star Trek is bad, Next Generation is bad, but this one thing bugs him. And what I could only imagine that if he does get on Picard, they're going to give him a wife, right? I mean, they're going <laughs> to, they're, they're going to, they're just going to wrap this up in a bow and, and hopefully they show, you know, show the wife as opposed to just, having it be a line of dialogue to say, oh, I heard you got married in, on Risa, you know, or something like that. Let him have a kiss or something. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So let's move on to just a tiny tidbit about Star Trek Prodigy. That is that they're going to be airing the two-part premiere, Lost and Found, on Nickelodeon, on cable TV in the USA on December 17th at 8 p.m. in the evening. Now, this is just a special presentation of Prodigy in a way as a promotion. I mean, they've already made the avail the episode available on YouTube. So this is all part of promoting the show being on Paramount Plus. Now, Prodigy will eventually be on Nickelodeon. And I think some people thought this was the start of that, but it's not. We don't expect it to start airing until after 10 episodes have aired on Paramount Plus. And then sometime in 2022, those 10 will be on Nickelodeon in the USA. Probably before the second batch of 10 from season one start airing by the end of the year. But we don't know when. So that's our spoiler-free Prodigy news. But... For <laughs> we do have, if you, I'm sure you guys noticed that Annie and David, our excellent kid reviewers, Tony's niece and nephew, were not around on our podcast when we talked about episode 105. So, um, this is just for people who've seen Prodigy. This part, um, Tony, you finally went and got them to watch it and talk to them about it, right? Well, it was Thanksgiving weekend. I had lots of time with the kids. Yay. So this is the episode Terror Firma, which was the second part of a two-parter where they're on the planet with the evil plant that could read your mind. They really liked it. They found it you know, really surprising in a lot of ways, and they felt that it really tied things up uh, for what is essentially the first half of the first half of the first season. You know, there were some cute things. David thought the uh, protostar might be somehow related to Zero because they're both glowing things in balls. Yeah, he thought it was Zero's species. <laughs> like a giant Zero. <laughs> I mean, it's hard because you look at Zero and you think that they're a robot. It's so hard to keep getting it out of your head that, oh, they're not really a robot. Yeah. They're an entity inside a casing. When I was rewatching it with them, it, it occurred to me, like, how does Zero move when he's floating? There must yeah, be some. I don't know how. I don't understand the floating. I, I enjoy it, but I don't understand it. Remember when they show up in a crashed Klingon ship? So I paused it then and I asked them, do you know what a Klingon is? <laughs> and they said, no. That sounds both. like the opening to a joke. Yeah, just, you know, because I was curious if any of that landed and only until I showed them a picture of Klingons with swords 
Then Annie kind of put it together. She's like, oh, they mentioned how warriors couldn't survive on the planet. Now this makes sense once she saw what Klingons looked like. And it made me think, are the writers and being too clever? Maybe they should have shown what a Klingon looked like in the episode, you know, like a hologram or a captain's log snippet or something to kind of sell this notion of how dangerous the planet was. Cause it, you know, it ate up some Klingons, obviously. Yeah. Although I, I mean, I don't know. I'm sort of torn on that one because I think, you know, it has to work for obviously like a lot of kids are watching with parents who are like, do you know what a Klingon who are doing what you did, which is here's a picture of Klingons. Um, but I think if they aren't familiar with them, it's still, you still get the same idea across, which is they mention, oh, they're warriors. And I think it would have landed better. I mean, obviously the show is trying to minimize how much Star Trek they push on you at once, but Klingons are so iconic. It, it wouldn't have killed them to just show a picture of a Klingon. Fair enough. I think we should listen to, to some of their review. I want to hear what they have to say. I think it was a really good episode. I like that Me episode. Too. I thought it was good. It was a good yeah. mixture. Yeah, the first ep- the episode before it, and then the episode. It was a twist turner because the planet kept changing. But what's really surprising to me was that the dad chose the ship over Gwen. So you didn't think he would do that? No. I thought for sure he would do that. <laughs> do you feel that Gwen is now... Yes, I do. Say she, what you think. Yeah. I think she's with them now because she literally just, like, for no first thoughts, ran away from her dad. And what do you think? I think she joined them because twice she, like, first she... Um, told her dad that, like, she stood up to her dad, and then she initiated the protostar. So those were two things where she kind of broke off of her dad. What did you think of how Dow was treating Gwen through the episode and how it changed? I thought he was um, treating her like she wasn't a part of the group any sort of way. Uh, but at the end, uh, he appreciated her as, uh, in the crew. Yeah, at the beginning, he was still kind of mad at her, or was, didn't think that he needed to save her because, like, she put them in that position, but then, like, the other people were like, you need to help her, so then he helped her. You've seen five episodes now. Mm-hmm. How do you feel some or each of the characters has changed or grown or do you think anyone has learned lessons um i think um both um uh uh al or what's his name dow dow and uh gwen have learned lessons what Um, lessons do you think they've learned they've learned so dow has learned to like not be selfish Mm -hmm. i guess and then quinn has learned not to like um Always go with her father's, um, what he says, and uh, not just stand up for herself sometimes. Okay. Do you agree with that, Amy? I think it was hard to, like, be living as slaves on the planet. So I think they're learning how to open up to each other now that they're more friends. Like, they're talking about themselves and, like, what they saw in the planet, how that can reflect on them and, like, how they feel about it all. So it's great that they're seeing character development, especially with Gwen. 
they were really fixated on how Gwyn pivoted in this episode and the way you know, the relationship with her and her dad was kind of a big deal to them. Seeing how the dad kind of betrayed her in the episode was had a bigger emotional impact than that I didn't appreciate as much. But I think for kids, seeing a parent reject oh, yeah. their own child is like, wow, you know, and, you know, that really drove it home more for me seeing them react to that. It's like, oh, yeah, that is kind of a big deal. It's devastating. I mean, it's the opposite of what parents are supposed to do and promise to do. I love the heavy emotional beats of this show, and I'm really glad it's getting through to the kids, too. So I know you are always asking me, like, what do you predict is going to happen next? And I'm always like, I don't know. I don't like predictions. But you ask them, what, where do you think they're going to do next? And then as they talk to you about that, you got to deliver what I found to be like an adorable, lovely, soul affirming description of the Federation. So <laughs> <laughs> let's listen to this whole conversation. You're in for a treat, folks. So where do you think, now that they've got the ship and it's super fast, what do you think they're going to do next? Uh, go to another planet and explore it. Weren't they talking about how the, um, the like, main people in charge of the whole galaxy, not the bad people, but, like, good people? Isn't there um, a committee that controls the, like, space, and so then that's why they had to lie about them being cadets? So they would right. find out. So, and, think, do you remember the, what that's called? Um, nation or something? I don't really know. It's called the Federation. Federation. Right. Why do they call it the Federation? Well, it's 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 it it's actually called the United Federation of Planets, or in short, Federation. And what it is is, have you heard of the United Nations? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's so in. It's Star that except planets going to planets. Right, so so in Star Trek, there's a thing that's exactly like the United Nations, except there's different aliens. Remember in the second episode, Janeway said, there's this thing, and there's all these aliens, and we all work together? I mean, but it, like, if they knew that they were like in space using the ship, it wouldn't be good, because they're not real cadets, so they're not trained to be on the ship. Right, because they are I think they're going to have a... Um, Meeting with them in the next with episode. The, with the, the federation. federation. Like, the Federation's going to find them, they're going to run into the Federation... Or they're going to go to there's a capital or something. Although they didn't know what the Federation was or remember what it was called, I think they're right. And in fact, I think when we did our review, I made kind of a similar prediction. Although I don't think they're going to go into the Federation itself, but they're going to run into some Federation people. My prediction is eventually they're going to run into Chakotay and his ship which is going to be somewhere in the Delta Quadrant, I'm guessing. But yeah, I think they're right, actually. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's time to start federationing up this show a little bit more in the back five. Yeah, I agree. I think is a good prediction. And I it just, it tells me that they really are getting everything that's being given. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But maybe I'm sure there is a website or something on this where, or if not, you know, Nickelodeon should put something together that has a little thing of, you know, what's a replicator? What's a federation? What's a, you know, kind of a Trek terminology to help new fans come to, you know, understand the show better. There is so much stuff you could do online on the Nickelodeon website to have fun with this show. 
because you could have something interactive that you click on that pops up with information or that hologram Janeway explains what things are. I mean, there's so much you could do. So I hope they will are some pretty creative people over there. Let's move on to discovery. Um, before we get started on the episode, a little follow-up to the season premiere. You know, we were talking about all the new costumes when we had Matt on and one of which was the new leather outfit for Michael. And, one of us was saying, you know, is this a, you know, we were saying this is a new Federation outfit, is a new Starfleet captain's outfit, or is this a civilian outfit? It was unclear. So the ready room, which I highly recommend the ready room, it's kind of the official after show. Yeah. Shows up on YouTube. The interviews, I mean, I love Will Wheaton, but the interviews are a little too syrupy. I was going to say lightweight. <laughs> They're a little yeah. lightweight. Yeah. But they they always have these great little video packages, a lot of great behind-the-scenes stuff. Last week I mentioned the one about the AR wall. So the most recent one had a feature on the new costumes, and Gersha Phillips talked about that outfit. And what's interesting is the answer is it is, yes, a civilian outfit and a Starfleet outfit. Because when she read the script, she thought Michael was acting as a courier again with Book for some reason. So she designed a courier outfit for Michael. She didn't realize that Michael was acting as captain of the ship. Um, and so in that scene with the butterfly people, then when that was pointed out to her, they changed the outfit to make it more Starfleety. So right. now it is a Starfleet outfit. So in theory, other people could show up in the that, but that's probably unlikely. But so anyway... I do find it a little odd that they didn't have a conversation that, you know, I would, you know, give the scripts to your, the head of makeup and the head of costumes and all these departments. But then wouldn't you sit with them at some point before they create something and say, so what are you thinking? Well, I don't, I don't know if they actually made it. I think she designed it. And then they said, oh, she's not a courier again. She's a Starfleet captain. So then they modified it maybe change the color to match her red uniform. Who knows? They didn't really show her original design. And there's other stuff in the package that's nice where it shows different iterations of other designs, like mm -hmm. um, the Kelpie and Council design and some other stuff. So, And it's always fun to look at, you know, the things they didn't choose. Yeah, I remember the one from first season was the red medical outfit for Culber, for Mirror Culber, who we did, never ended up seeing. But there was a full red outfit for him. Yeah. They eventually <laughs> did use that in, in a future episode. Right. That was a design they were going to use, but then we, they never saw the character. These are kind of rejected ideas when until they finally landed on the various things. Right. And she talked more about how, uh, why they changed the colors, because Michael looked like she was, her head was floating around the bridge. <laughs> floating <laughs> head. Because gray uniforms. <laughs> Blended. On a great background, yeah. yeah. God, how did they not see that coming? I know, okay. I know. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about Choose to Live, episode 403. All right. What'd you think? Well, which episode are we talking about? Because there's essentially three mini-sodes in one episode. It's, a, it's right. a very weird thing. There's a very clear A story, B story, C story. I liked one and a half of those three stories. <laughs> I mean, this was like it was like a weird sidetrack episode. They gave the they gave um, the episode permission early on in one of the first scenes 
when someone says, oh, the anomaly is not threatening any system. So, you know, we could basically spend a week not caring about it that much, you know, not worrying about it, destroying any other planets. But we'll mention it often enough to remind you that it's still there. I liked elements of it. I didn't like other elements of it. It's kind of, it's, it's, it's a kind of typical discovery middling episode where too much is going on and it almost feels like not enough time and attention is being given to any given one of them, but it has a lot of stuff to like. I, you know, I especially liked Tilly in this episode. I thought she had a lot of great lines. I, I enjoyed the A story. I just wanted more of it. And I wanted more of the Navarre story with Book and Stamets. Um, and I wanted them to connect more. It, you yeah. know, there was two of these stories were very Navarre <laughs> and yet had zero connection. Right. There was just, all, you know, except for Michael at the beginning saying, oh, we're going to send Stamets to Navarre. And then I'm going to go deal with this Navarre nun. It just felt like they could have been a little more connected as the story went on. They just kind of went off on two different directions, even though they were both Navarre Vulcan related. Right. Um, Adjacent. Although, yes. Although <laughs> it was nice that, you know, because remember in season three, um, they visited Navarre in a great episode, I thought except for the fact that they showed up at Navarre and never left the ship. So this, this time they went down. To they made floating, up for it. Yeah. They, they really floating, made up for it. Yeah. They didn't actually, they still didn't land on the planet. So, cause they were in a floating platform, but you know, but it was gorgeous. It was close enough. It looked great. So, yeah. um, uh, no, I really enjoyed that. The visuals on that. Anyway, before we get into the specifics, what are your kind of high level thoughts? I mean, on- my overall, my overall thought, I mean, I agree with you about the sort of disjointed stories, but I do think that it did. One of the things I really have always liked about Discovery is that they will take time to have these real moments that resonate. Either they're very fun or they just pop or they hit like an emotional note in a way that I find very memorable. And it really helps when the, you know, I'm not like an action, action, action person. And so sometimes it's nice to take a breath and and be able to have moments. And I really like the Tilly stuff. I loved the stuff with book and the mind meld. I thought was really great and powerful. And it finally made sense that Michael's mom was involved because there was a reason (laughs) because she had a personal connection to this person that they were chasing. But so, yeah, I think for me, I enjoyed it. I thought there were enough moments put together that, that kept my attention throughout the episode and got me thinking about different things. I also think, by the way, Blue Del Barrio did, did, gave a knockout performance. Agreed. Agreed. And we haven't mentioned the, much about, the, the, I guess, the C story or was that the B story? I guess the, there are four who, stories, really. Well, what, I mean, the A story is the Navarre he, None visit to the alien moon. I right. consider that all the A story. That's the A story. I think the B story is Tilly. Well, Tilly's, I guess Tilly's part, you know, I see Tilly's character. I mean, in a way, I feel like that whole visit, you know, was about Tilly, really. that I see that as a Tilly story, the, the, the packaged inside of a warrior nun story. Oh, see, I didn't. Because from the beginning, it was presented as an opportunity for Tilly to do something different. And it was all about paths 
So let's let's dive in specifically because there was a lot of talk about paths in this and choosing different paths and Tilly obviously feels like out of sorts and she's trying to do something different. So Saru suggests this. And the biggest moment I felt in that whole thing was when Tilly is talking to Gabriel about the way of the Kuat Malat and Gabriel says the choose to live thing is a shortened version of a longer thing. The longer thing is the path you are on has come to an end. Choose to live. And, and she goes on to say, you know, when you're facing a Kuat Malat nun, you're facing death essentially. And what, what Tilly says is what if the death is more metaphorical? I right. think that's the, that's the whole storyline. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, Tilly had been on a very clear path. And then, frankly, her superiors did her a great disservice by making her first officer, which right. everyone they rushed watching, her to the end of the path. When right. She wasn't everyone ready. watching knew it was a bad idea. <laughs> like all the viewers were like, even the Tilly lovers were like, mm, not a good call. And so it put her in, an, in a difficult position because now her path has completely changed and she doesn't know how to deal with it. So is she going to become a Kuat Malat nun? I don't think so. But it feels like the whole, you know, I'm going to be captain one day thing is over for her. Right. She or, may still want to be captain one day, but, um, but she understands that now she's, she's that the way she was doing, she was the young bright eyed cadet. And she's now been through things that very few people ever have been through. You know, she and her crewmates together have been through all of this stuff. And so she has to rethink her path and her goals and her plans. Although we we got uh, a lot more of the kind of fun Tilly when she's talking to the other Kuat Malat nun. Oh my and god, she's, I love that part. And she she drops the sword, which is great. You know, I love and... when she drops the sword and says she moisturized her hands this morning, so that's why it fell. But my favorite part, I love this is. I don't know if you'll relate to this the same way I did, but when the the nun, are they? Yeah, I guess they're like nuns. Said to her, "You worry that I am dismayed by your enthusiasm. I am not." And then Tilly's really happy about that. But I feel like this is going to be one of my feminism things. I feel like women are constantly discouraged from being enthusiastic, and then it's like, oh, you know, it's like seen as silly when we're very passionate and very enthusiastic about something, like the way people are dismissive of fangirls and things like that. And so I really liked that line. And I really liked that she got respect for being enthusiastic. That was a big one for me. I mean, what's weird is it, we visit a strange new world, or in this case, a new asteroid, or no, a moon. Uh, but that's no moon, and nor is it a Death Star. It was a ship. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I mean, so the kind of Star Trek exploration story, this is one of those cases where there was an interesting character story happening here. And ironically, because you think mom is showing up, this is going to be a Michael exploration story. But again, Michael, this season, you know, she's like, fine. You know, she, you know, her boyfriend's a little messed up and she's worried about that. But in general, she seems okay. Her kind of main problem in life is she's got a little bit of tension with the president. Like at one point she says to Saru, don't get me started on Relic. Well, she doesn't <laughs> like politics. She doesn't like politics being involved in what in her job although i think relic was fine in this episode she's doing what she can 
because it's clear that Navar they need Navar back in the fold, which of course they do because they're the Vulcans and the Romulans. So, you know, you can't go wrong with that combo. Um, and the president's doing everything she can, you know, and Michael should, you know, chill out. And, you know, that's, well, she's Michael just, being... just doesn't like politics. Fair enough. I love the scene at the end with Vance kind of exp- <laughs> explaining how, thing. yeah, the orchestra <laughs> thing is kind of explaining, which is, it was a little on the nosey, but I liked how he said that you're the kind of showy soloist. Yes. First, <laughs> I think he said first violin or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so where was I going with this? But so this story was really about Tilly, that whole arc with the nun. But we, what I feel like we get cut short on is, so tell us about these aliens. You know, like it was weird how they resolved the story with the nun and they just leave Left. the ship. Yeah. They didn't talk. It's like, I mean, if, you know, this is one of your things. Just say, give us a line something to you know maybe they're xenophobic or there's they you know there was a reason why they never even you know they just kind of waved at them from the window you know and left and you know it's a first contact situation it just seems like you know obviously there's other things to happen you know they've got to deal with the gray story and the stamets book story and they just didn't have time for it but it was a little anticlimactic yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> with, with that, I mean, the Tilly stuff worked, but that was like, I found the ship fascinating and I wanted to learn more. I mean, Michael did kind of sort it out because she's a Xeno anthropologist. So they brought that up again. I don't think they actually mentioned that, but she was working out the hieroglyphs or whatever on the walls and, right, you know. But that's um, why, so I felt like once they got there, Tilly didn't do anything extraordinary so that's why i disagree with you in a way about it being a tilly story tilly learned a lot while she was there but she didn't she didn't do anything extraordinary the thing she's good at putting people at ease she didn't really do um well she put the mother in and she put michael and gabriel they were fighting and she kind of helped them stop fight as much but you're right maybe she should have been the one to figure out that it was a um because Michael was the one who's like, oh, this is obviously a sleeper ship and it's broken and we got to fix right. it. So Tilly should have been the one to do that. Tilly, Right. And Michael's the one who figured out there was an underground chamber also. So I just felt like one of those things should have been Tilly because Tilly almost like Tilly was there for her own journey. But it, but it could have been anybody there at that point. Right. Tilly wasn't doing any of her sciencey stuff. The only thing she did right. is break break the ship. I loved how she said, I really did a number on this thing. I know. She's <laughs> so good. She's so good. I mean, I do. I love every scene that she's in. I mean, yeah. and to that, I'll make a similar point about Saru because I loved all of his scenes, but all he did this episode was give advice to people. And he didn't do anything like we, I, we, I would have loved to have seen him on the bridge while Michael was gone. We didn't get any of that. And so, you know, it's like he was just there to facilitate other stories. And I'm so ready to see Saru in action. I want a bridge scene. I want to see them all doing their thing. I want to see him take the, you know, there's so many opportunities there. And of course, we had Tarina, Saru, they're on Vulcan. They've got a beautiful sunset. Come on. I know. Duh. They're not even in the same room together. Yeah, they didn't even get together. Such a wasted opportunity. Saru's just giving advice in the new bar and uh where we got the the two we got the two wise men together we got 
uh, Culber and Saru having a wise man off in the bar. Yes, yes. Who, who could be more, you know, guiding and uh, wise and uh, emotionally connected? And uh, I don't know. I don't know who won that round. Here's, um, but here's my bar question for you: Do you think this is a bar that people go to, or do you think it's like a holographic bar room? One of the things about this future is once you introduce programmable matter, isn't it all the same, right? So even though they still have holodecks, isn't programmable matter essentially create an environment for you? So it, the matter's programmable, holograms are programmable, it's all the same. The only difference is like, you know, distant vistas, you know, so it clearly had walls. I, I don't know. I'm going to say they they built it, but it's probably... Like the fire wasn't real fire, you know, probably because that's dangerous to have on a ship. Um, but, <laughs> Seems unwise uh, without a chimney. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the, they had like real darts in their hands and they were throwing the darts. I feel yep. like it's a, you know, which of course is an homage to um, Quark's Bar and uh, the darts champion, Miles O'Brien. <laughs> 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 um, until it was revealed that Julian was throwing the games all along because right. he is gen- genetically superior. But no, I, I, I like the bar set. It was c- cozy and casual. And it's, a you know, every show has, um, you know, the Lower Decks has a bar. TNG had a bar. DS9 obviously had a bar. Voyager kind of had a bar. I guess the, the mess hall. Well, they also had like Sandrine's. Yeah. But the, I mean, the because the, the Discovery mess hall is just too antiseptic. It doesn't lend itself as well to certain kinds of scenes. I think that this is a better environment for. So right. I liked it. There was a couple touches in there. There was a Lurian in there. Obviously, it's not Morn, but it's a homage to Morn. The bartender was an officer. Hard to really get a good look at him, but it could have been a Ferengi. Yeah, that would be another homage. So, so the the short version, I liked the bar, and I th- I think those scenes with Adira and Culber in the bar were good for sure. Yeah, I did too. I thought it was a great. I hope it's. I hope we're going to see a lot of that set, and I liked it a lot. I mean, so getting to the gray storyline, which is either the B or the C story. I don't know. You have to add the minutes up. It's hard to tell, but <laughs> they didn't give you what you wanted, which is. They're just not going to explain how this works. Right. And the big thing they they haven't explained, the biggest missing piece to me is why is, why can Adira see Grey? Why is Grey still alive as a separate entity? It's unclear. Right. It's unclear how, how Z, who can't, who's appearing as a hologram. Right. They could think Z is arriving, but it was a hologram. Right. But yet Z could sense the presence of gray in bodies using his hands, his holographic hands. I mean, he wasn't even a projection like Stamets was in the last episode, which was cool. He was just an old fashioned hologram. Why didn't they just bring him on the ship? Why did that have to be a hologram? That made yeah, no sense. I don't know. It would have, it would have made a lot more sense if it, maybe because they wanted those scenes with, with um, Adira alone with gray. I guess it and feels it- like some stuff was cut out because there were two beds so they're, I'm betting there was a scene where both Adira, of them were yes. lying. Well, because Adira's the, wearing the white gown, which we know from the going into the Trill Pool. Like, that's right. part of it. And we know that, that they said they removed Grey, right? 
he gave a passing mention, which was <laughs> hard to or easy to miss, as it were. Um, but he did mention. Do you remember the episode where Jizia split her personality into different pieces? Of course, I remember that episode. Um, so he mentioned the Jian Tara, which was the the ritual, sort of of doing that, the process. Yeah, I, I mean, how it relates to what happened in this episode was like, you know, but at least they're trying, right? They're like, here's a, you know, here's a somewhat famous trill ritual. So um, let's go with that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I thought all the stuff, you know, Adira, I mean, Blue DiBario, I think did a really good job. So good. In every scene, whether it was nervous laughter, tr you know, sort of translating for Grey or crying. Like I just thought every scene, they're just so good. Very good. So they decided to lean in on the emotion of this and ignore all the science. And you know what? I'm, I'm kind of over, over that wishing to understand the science. And Whoops. I'm just glad yeah. that Gray is a real boy now. Yeah. I mean, it's almost too late. Like, okay, let's just move on. And you know what? I have to say, like, I know they do want to talk about trans issues and I, this is actually a terrific way to do it. And what I didn't like was like last week, I think it was, where Gray mentions like, oh, it was like when I, you know, I'm trans. It was like becoming trans or whatever. And I thought, no, 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 let's keep it sci-fi. Like it's, there were lines in there that were clearly, that would clearly resonate, I think, with trans people or people struggling with that, that are very powerful. Well, I, I felt that the point they're making, which they made in the previous season, was that even though we're in a sci-fi world, Adira is still non-binary in the future. It's not an allegory of being non-binary. They are non-binary. Non-binary still exists in the 32nd century. Right. And Gray transitioned in the 32nd century or whatever. Is Gray from the 32nd? Yeah. Gray is also the 32nd yes, century. Yes. And Gray transitioned as well. Uh, it's not an, an allegory to being trans. Gray is trans a trans character. No, and but this, they wanted this... that to be clear and not ambiguous. And so I'm okay with that. I guess so. I mean, I just think it's more interesting when it's less on the nose because you could take so many of the things that they talked about and put it in a context of someone becoming trans and it works beautifully. Okay. That's all. But yeah, no, you make a good point. So the storyline we haven't talked a lot about is everything that happened on Navarre with the Navarre Science Institute and Stamets and Book, which is kind of just carrying on. So now they're kind of buddies in a weird way. They've 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 well, bonded in the last episode. From the last episode, Stamets said to Book, I'm gonna figure this out for you. Like Stamets was committed specifically to Book and was so protective of book which i really liked like i don't want you to have to relive i don't want you to have to sit and hear us talk about it i don't want you to have a mind meld where you have to relive it you know is is feeling protective which i think is kind of beautiful i thought stamets was very funny with <laughs> when the scientists were all meditating <laughs> right i thought that was really good that was a little like because we were expecting Stamets is going to go to the Science Institute and they were going to just 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 dig into some math, math, techno math, you know, <laughs> and he, he shows up and they're like, OK, 
Um, thank you. We're all going to go to sleep now. <laughs> right. He's like, nap time? What is happening? I thought that was great. And I like, you know, whenever they take him out of his comfort zone, which is a tiny place, um, <laughs> I, they all, they have fun with him. And I thought that was good. And I loved, I, I liked the, the big thing for me in that was Tarina and Book. And what I loved the most about it was Tarina's respect for emotion. You know, because what we're used to seeing from Vulcans is almost a dismissal of emotion. And in this, she really respects, she, like when he said, oh, I want to, I want to, you know, get rid of my emotions. She ex- explained why his emotions are very important to him because of where he's from and who he is. And she responded to his emotions with grace and dignity. I, I think they touched on this a little bit last season, but the Navarians are not... Vulcans, even right. the Vulcan Navarians, that they've they've moved beyond simplicities of. I think there was a mention about like the needs of the many. You know that they don't. They've changed. They don't follow all those old axioms. And I think joining with the Romulans has, in a way, helped them. Even though they're still focused on logic, the Vulcan side at least, they're. I don't know, a bit more relaxed. And she certainly respects the, the importance of emotion to Quajon, Quajonians, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, especially because they're empaths. So, no, yeah, I, I thought that was all great. She was great in this episode. Yeah, she was. I mean, again, this is a, you think this storyline's about one thing, but it's actually about another thing. So this isn't about, this whole storyline isn't going to be about science and STEM. It's, and um, the anomaly, except that we now have a name for the anomaly. Well, we, um, yes, we have an acronym, right. and and I think I think the sciency bit was basically just saying to Stam, it's like stop pushing this theory; it's the wrong one. And I think right. that's going to help us dig into these themes of uncertainty that they have been talking about for a long time. It's leading right. us towards, oh my god, then what the hell is it? Right, because the previous episode he thought it was a binary black hole. This episode he thought it was a primordial wormhole, um, and the Vulcans helped him figure out that it wasn't that. And I mean, I think some people, when they watched the last episode, were coming away saying we didn't, you know, nothing happened because they didn't learn anything. They didn't, and I feel like they perhaps missed the whole point because the point was that this anomaly isn't something that you can solve in a day because they're again, getting back to the analogy of the pandemic, it's complicated and it's uncertain, which is the whole point of the season is the Mm -hmm. theme is uncertainty. And I think they, they did a good job at the end of this episode of um, Stamet says to Book, I'm sorry I had to go through all that for nothing because Book, you know, revealed he didn't see tachyons, which would have nailed down that theory. And Book said it wasn't for nothing because, again, in a way, that storyline, although it did reveal something about the anomaly, was really more about Book and his journey and his way of accepting the grief back into his heart because he was trying to be standoffish from it. So we have these plot lines with these hidden character stories underneath. 
And, you know, even though I loved the whole book, I mean, I cried when he cried and I felt all that pain and he's such a good actor. I, I felt like there was one going to nitpick for a second because I I loved where the, th- you know, where during the mind meld, she says, I have what I need. And we just hear their voices. I thought that was really well done. We hear her voice saying, I have what I need. We hear his voice saying, no, I want to keep going. There's something else I want to see. And then they go to the planet you know, in the mind meld to Quajan. And she says to him, you can't change anything. You can only see it exactly as it happened, like from your own memory. So his own memory is that he didn't turn around and see Leto because he was looking at his brother. So how did, I was very confused by how he was able to see something he didn't actually see the first time. Well, I, I think it was just that he wasn't able to fully remember the moment when his nephew turned back and his forehead glowed and but he says a, it he says i didn't see it because i turned to my brother i thought that it was just that she helped him access a couple of frames um, <laughs> you know because we we learned if, if you notice when she was doing the other part where she was looking at the sky she could do freeze frame you know so there is you know the mind melds now are you know they work like a very good VCR basically, <laughs> and <laughs> you can go forward, you can go backwards, you can do freeze frames, you can find just that extra, you know, moment. So, uh, you know, we learned something new about uh, mind melts. I see I what you're saying, but I think I don't think I, it I, makes I, sense because I think he specifically said he didn't see it, and then he sees okay, it. okay, that's that's possible. But I still um, love him. Of course, you do. This... <laughs> But in, in general, I generally liked that. I This is also another case where they're using the AR wall. I'm, I mean, they're doing some great stuff with the AR wall, the whole floating mm-hmm. platform thing. But I, 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 we've seen similar things in the first three episodes where it's obvious these are scenes where they're using the virtual set. But hopefully they start realizing that they could do more. Because you look at the Mandalorian, I mean... Because in every case, they're creating kind of these circular sets where people are standing around. Yeah. But hopefully they come up with more dynamic things. There's there's moments in the, uh, you know, in the Mandalorian where they're moving people around. They're riding on, you know, creatures or even in vehicles that you could make it more dynamic than, you know, create beautiful vista and stand there. Right. Create. <laughs> You know? But, you know, these are baby steps. They just got this new toy and they're learning how to use it. Sure. Um, so you know, maybe by the end of the season, we'll see some action sequences using the AR wall. And um, it does look beautiful when they do use it. Although I guess maybe they're it's maybe they're running through the forest with the um, with the butterfly people was probably some of that was probably done with the AR wall. Yeah, I think. that wasn't round. So, yeah, so. <laughs> okay, so I just disproved myself. But I still feel like there's the, the, they're caught up in this. Let's create a cool round thing. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's something I want to bring up because I think it's going to come up. And it's going to be very, very important later. Is the amulet that Buck wears. That he's now wearing, that he wasn't wearing before. How they gave Leto one during his ritual. And it's got some of the energy from the planet is inside that necklace. I think that's going to be very important later. 
it feels like it is. Yeah. It definitely feels like a thing. It's it could thing. just be an emotional beat, but uh, I don't yeah. think so. Because it is the energy. Remember, they did the energy of Quajon and they talked about it and the connection to the to the rocks and the trees and the planet. So there's something else there for sure. And the anomaly is now absorbed Quajon, so maybe they can mm-hmm. use it to track it. There's going to be uh, something. Absolutely. Maybe the anomaly is going to absorb the energy of Quajon and Book will be able to commune with it using his glowing head abilities, which we still don't know the full capabilities of. I don't know. Yeah. I'm reaching. No, but there are a lot of different options. It can be that somehow he can reach it and communicate with it, that somehow something is saved from the planet. Who knows? But there is definitely something coming. So here's my nitpick for the episode. So they're on the book ship and um, Gabriel says, oh, you know, when we go down to the planet, you know, don't bring your phasers, don't bring your phasers. Ugh. And which was weird. And I don't feel like a Starfleet officer would ever give up their phaser and they hand them swords. That was kind of cute. But then the mercenaries and the bad nun show up <laughs> on book's ship and it's like, why? You have phasers. <laughs> you have, fa- you know, it, I mean, ha- was it disrespectful <laughs> to do, you know, cause the, you know, the nun got killed, you know, and at no point does, does Michael nor Tilly grab a, fa- aren't they built into their wrists? If yeah. Not, they would have, you know, they should have just had, that. I, I agree. The same thing got me at the same moment. I was like, what, what use a phaser? I mean, I know things are happening fast, but Michael is Super Michael. She should be able to grab a phaser or turn part of the ship into a phaser because it's all programmable matter. Who knows? But it just seemed weird that they're still using the swords. Um, So Tilly was hilarious trying to use a sword. It's not very I know. And I was I was thinking, you know, if you were Tilly and you wanted to be captain like back before, you you'd take combat training. I thought it was out of character for her to not have combat training. I feel like she would be doing it. I feel like that's something she she probably has the bare minimum and it's probably mostly with phasers again. I mean, how much sword fighting is part of your requirement on the command track? Punching is (laughs) a little bit, but you know, I think uh, she was more focused on the other aspects of becoming a captain. I think it was entirely believable when Michael said she has many, capabilities but combat isn't one of them another another thing you know just a curiosity so the reason why grave robbers were going after the aliens was because their bodies ca- contained latinum lit latinum so apparently that's still a thing did, did they mention latinum in season three as a f- currency i can't remember now I maybe don't they remember. did the whole point of latinum is but- it can't it can't be replicated so even by the 32nd century that's still the case and it's still kind of a thing yep i have another funny nitpick if you want it okay (laughs) (laughs) when burnham tells book that she'll give him his ship back washed and waxed and he seems to get that reference and know what she's talking about and i'm thinking like if you said that to my teenagers they probably wouldn't know what the hell you were talking about like there was, and, and why does he know? And why does she know? But especially why does he know? And then, like, I feel like it was an episode or two ago where Adira said something like, signed, sealed, delivered. And I'm like, why would you know that expression? <laughs> like, they're, they're, well, that using, was the butterfly people said that. They're, 
No, I thought I think Adira said it. Oh, but the butterfly people said, you know, with no strings attached, or I forget. Yeah, they, no strings they, attached they, makes. I think for the low, low price. I think one of them said for the low, low price, which seemed very Earthican. Yeah, there's there were a lot of ex- like they're using certain expressions the same way. Look, old Star Trek used to they'd say it's like making a long distance call, and I'd be like, why in the future do you know what a long distance <laughs> call is? That it's such a convenient analogy. Like it's not you could say oh someone studied history and they know things, but if you're using an analogy, it's to get people to understand what you're saying in a quick shortcut kind of way, and they're using these expressions that I would think would not have any meaning in this future world. I mean, yes, you can create a whole thing, but to me, it feels a little bit uh, off. Well, the uh, writer, Terry Hughes Burton is new in season four. So this is her and her first episode. She joined as a co-EP. So um, it may take a little while for her to de 21st century. Although she's mostly done genre stuff. She worked on the 100 year. In fact, her last show was a little um, on the nose. It was a Netflix series called Warrior Nun. So. There you go. I mean, there were, I thought there were some fantastic lines of dialogue in this episode that I really enjoyed. So it was amazing. It's just, that was just a tiny little nitpick, but they were such, they were great lines. Even just like Tilly eating the mac and cheese and saying that was disturbingly not delicious. And then Saru says, I had to write these ones down. Well, your dislike of cheese certainly renders you a rarity among humans. I was not aware it was considered an actual disorder. <laughs> I, I think all the little moments between two characters had a lot of good, fun dialogue. I think she did a really good job, for sure. What? And Saru got the best line of the whole episode. Please tell me you wrote it down. Well, I probably did, but I don't know which one you're referring to. You ready? It okay. is difficult to ride two veil beasts with only one oh, yeah. set of buttocks. <laughs> <laughs> it's, which is true, of course. It's a Kelpian adage, but I thought it was just great. I mean, there were so many good lines, but that, I, I believe, wins. <laughs> we learned a little bit about Kaminar. They're, they're rejoining the stars because Saru talked him into it in episode yep. one. So. Yep. Things are happening out there in the galaxy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just don't touch the kelp, swamp kelp, while it's in bloom for whatever reason. It's Tony, it's better if you don't know. Okay. (laughs) So what's interesting with all these stories is that even if the characters and story elements didn't necessarily flow from one to the other, everything felt a little isolated, there was a theme that, that seemed to be in each of them, I thought, which has to do with the title of the episode, which is Choose to Live and about the conversation that Tilly had about paths. Yeah, I, I, I could see that. In each case, you've got one of the characters, quote, choosing to live, as it were. Um, Tilly is maybe the most overt case, because even though that was all about the Co-op Malat and everything, she was the one you know, talking about making a choice and that whole metaphorical death thing. So I can see that she's kind of making a new life choice to live. She was also on a very clear path sort of up until this season. So that's why it's such a big shift for her to put hers behind her. And then you have the other characters doing it too. Like Book is, you know, his situation is new, but he's realizing that the path he's going down, which is a path of guilt 
and sorrow and disconnection is not the path that he was going to stay on. Right. So he's choosing to re-engage with life because, you know, otherwise he's just going to end up wallowing in self-pity forever. Right. I mean, the the, the gray storyline could be very, you know, a little on the nose because gray is choosing to live as, in a real body. So it's kind of, but I guess that's what that one is about. Although maybe, could we say Adira is also choosing to live? I think, well, Adira is choosing to live without gray sort of within them. And there are shift, again, shifting paths, like changing the path. I was walking around with this, with a ghost boyfriend. <laughs> now, now it's a real boy. I mean, there was a, an element of Adira being afraid of letting go, because even though they understood, you know, that it would be nice to have Gray be real again, there was also a fear of disconnecting almost. Right. And and in a way, probably of of having to, like, yeah, it, it's being separate, being separated in a pretty intense way. And then se- separate from that story, Stamets was really stuck on the wrong path. Like he was so all he wanted to do was prove the thing he was determined to prove because he thought it was true. And he wasn't accepting that it wasn't true. He was only accepting that they hadn't found the evidence to support it. And that was a tough one for him to realize, oh, I have to stop with this theory I have because it's not the right theory. So he's also choosing a new path. Yeah. Or, you know, it's being chosen for him, as it were. But, well, he, uh... he has to accept it. And he was struggling with it and didn't want to. And then finally did. That's a, a good point. All right. I think that's basically it for episode 403. It was another middle Star Trek Discovery episode. But a lot of fun little moments here and there. Didn't carry on the season arc. So people who were like hoping that episode 3 of 13 was going to sort out all the uncertainty may be disappointed, but you probably shouldn't have gone into it thinking that that was the case. Right. I think specifically it did carry on the season arc because that is the point of the season. Exactly. Well said. Well said. Thank you. Do you got anything else? No, I got nothing else on Discovery. What is your bit of the week? My bit is a little Reese's Buttercup kind of thing of two things that taste great together. It's Deep Space Nine and Star Wars Clone Wars. (laughs) two of my favorite things and this YouTube guy who we've featured on the site before he does these, it's called Ryan's edits and he just edits things. He he likes to put bloopers back into episodes and stuff like that. (laughs) And what he's done is if you know, clone wars, it always starts off with this kind of old fashioned serial summary of the story leading into the episode to kind of introduce the episode. But this guy with this kind of booming old fashioned yes. voice, like an announcer voice. Yeah. And he has taken who knows how many moments of clone wars audio and made it fit into DS nine episodes. And he's done a couple of these so far. So let's run a little bit of him doing it for a wonderful episode. Move along home from season one. <laughs> Officers in jeopardy. First contact with a new civilization. Obsessed with games and gambling. Causes disaster for Commander Sisko. Trapped inside the chula board game by Quark's greed. Sisko must reunite with his fellow officers and solve the Wadi Labyrinth. But their progress is hindered by a series of tragic rolls of the dice in the real world. 
Will their training and wits be enough to survive Jula? Or is Quark their only hope for freedom? The amazing thing is how it just works. Like I how know. he's just got the edit <laughs> perfectly. It sounds like he hired the voice guy to do it, you know? Uh, but obviously he just is really good at editing. Yeah, it sounds great. I just I thought it was really funny. I watched that show also and enjoyed it very much. So it was just a nice way to do it. Very funny. What's your bit of the week? Mine is, I actually felt like I should talk about this because I did review it for the website. So um, the Star Trek Borg advent calendar, which I think we talked about once when we first heard that it was going to exist. And I was joking saying, nothing says celebration like a Borg cube, but or festive, (laughs) I think was the word I used. But anyway, we got this in to review. And I just, the thing about it, like I see people talking about it and there are two ways to look at it. And it's basically this, it's a board cube. It has all these boxes inside it, all numbered so that you know which one to do first for the advent, if that's your thing. Um, And there's a little Star Trek something in each box. And each box has this fantastic Borg circuitry pattern tissue paper inside it that the things are inside and so i saw some people say like oh it's just it's just these small things why would i pay so much because it's about 150 bucks but i'm gonna tell you folks if you have a friend someone you really care about and can spend that money on who's a star trek fan like i wouldn't buy this for myself because i don't buy things like that for myself i don't buy purely fun things for myself i am a mom (laughs) i have a mortgage whatever but Going through this cube was so much fun. And I was just gleefully cackling, opening every box, seeing what was inside. It was a very fun adventure. I thought there were a bunch of things that I think are great. My favorite thing is things that are practical as well, like a SS Botany Bay luggage tag, um, which I put (laughs) on my luggage when I went to Toronto. And I love things like that. But I have to say, this is a fantastic gift. And if someone had given it to me, like, I feel like it's my husband would have bought it for me except that I was lucky enough to get it to review. It's filled with great, fun, small things, some of which you'll use, some of which you'll give to your friends if that's not your particular thing. And the actual experience of it is so enjoyable. And if you know someone who's a Star Trek fan who needs to be cheered up, this is a great gift for them. So you can go to the site and I put up some pictures of some of the things I found that people commenting weren't really getting like the whole joy of it. So I don't know if I didn't convey that accurately, which is why I felt like I must convey it now. It was a very (laughs) joyful experience. I only feel bad because you had to review it that you didn't get because the joy of it, I imagine, is enhanced if it's a daily thing, which is the whole point of an advent calendar. Because you had to review it, you had to pretend you were having 24 days in 24 minutes. I did, but I took the sheet that comes with it that tells you what everything is and I put it out of sight. And then I, and I happened to be having a rough day that day. And I just started opening it up one by one. And I was, it just put me in the greatest mood. And then I put everything back. And so now again, I get to do it all over again whenever I want. (laughs) Because I don't remember what's in each box. I've taken some of the things out and I'm using them. But every once in a while, I just go over to it and I'm just pick another drawer and I open another box and it's just like surprise all over again. So entertaining. It's the the gift that keeps on giving really. And honestly, if if my husband were a Star Trek fan, I would buy it for him, but he's, that's his real only flaw. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, um, (laughs) I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. Welcome to December as we head towards Christmas and happy Hanukkah. 
by the way, to everyone. Yeah. Little Riker celebrated at my house. There's a picture <laughs> on Twitter to prove it. Little Riker. So we've got episode four coming up next Friday. So we'll be back with that on All Access Star Trek. See you then.